0: going to go ahead and get started. Uh, I know there's a lot of folks still waiting to come in, but they'll uh, they'll try to do it quietly as we get going. Uh, my name is Michael Tanner, and I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, and I want to welcome you to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium and to the Cato Institute for this discussion of welfare reform's 20th anniversary. Uh, it was uh, 20 years ago today that uh, Sergeant Pepper taught the band to play, and uh, Twenty years ago, Bill Clinton signed welfare reform. It was actually the third attempt. There was a couple of previous attempts to pass welfare reform that he actually vetoed or threatened to veto, and then finally ended up with the uh, bill that he did sign. And I think one of the things we fail to remember is just how controversial this bill was. Uh, there was protest even as he signed it, there were people outside the White House who were protesting in chants of one, two, three, four, stop the war on the poor. Uh, three members of his own administration resigned in protest uh, because he was signing this law. And there were all manner of dire predictions, uh, the New Republic wrote an article and they talked about how there'd be family breakup and wages would f- decline and there'd be millions of people thrown into poverty. There's a very famous study by a think tank in town that said a million additional children would be cast into poverty if this law passed. Uh, it, w- it was very controversial uh, when it passed. And we saw, as I say, mention that people on the, the left were sort of predicting all sorts of terrible things would happen. And on the right, people were talking about this being a new era, that the entire framework of social welfare policy had shifted. We were moving away from welfare to work, for example. That we were changing the attitude of something that kept people in dependence, the ideas that Charles Murray had talked about in losing ground that we were moving away from that entire ethic of welfare into something very different uh, that was going to reduce spending, move people off the rolls, get people into work, give people a chance of self-sufficiency, and radically change what the dole meant in America. The reality, I think, is that neither one of those predictions came true. And we have a couple of panels that are going to talk about this a little bit later. One that's going to look back on what happened in the past and kind of sort of measure the goals of welfare reform against what actually has been achieved. And then we're going to take another another panel that's going to look at what we can do from here. What is the next step in welfare reform? What lessons can we learn from the past and apply them to the next generation of welfare reform? Some really fantastic people who you're going to hear from. But I'd like to take a few minutes before we begin to sort of, if I can, put some of this in context, maybe set some of the stage, raise a few questions that I hope that you'll be thinking about and maybe our panelists will touch on as we move forward and kind of think about what welfare reform has actually meant. And one of the important things, I think, to recognize is that welfare reform touched on a very small portion of what welfare or the social welfare safety net in the United States actually is. I mean, if federal, welfare reform actually handled what was then Aid for Families with Dependent Children, AFDC. It's now TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, and a couple of other small programs. But there are actually more than 100 federal anti-poverty programs uh, of various sizes and kinds. 70 of those programs actually provide benefits to individuals. They either give them cash benefits or more commonly what's called in-kind benefits, which is something like housing or food stamps or health care or something where the people don't actually receive cash but receive some other kind of benefit based on whether or not they are low income. Uh, that's a huge federal social welfare bio- uh, bureaucracy And it spends a lot of money. Uh, Those uh, 100-plus anti-poverty programs cost the federal government last year about $695 billion. And if you throw in state and local spending, which is another $280 billion, we're close to spending a $1 trillion every year fighting poverty in this country. You can't say that we don't try, at least in terms of dollars. If you're measuring inputs into fighting poverty, we have a fairly high number of inputs. We're spending a lot of money fighting poverty in this country. Now, I do want to keep this in perspective, though, because whenever I start talking about how much money we're spending fighting poverty, people get the idea that somehow That's where the money is in Washington, that it's all being wasted on poor people. And you get a lot of very negative press around this. Some of the right-wing radio talk show hosts love to go crazy about these numbers every time I point them out. So I just want to keep it a little bit in, in context here that the amount of money we spend on welfare for the poor is dwarfed by the amount of money we spend on welfare for other people. The amount of money we spend on welfare for the elderly, for example, is far, far greater than the amount of money we spend on welfare for the poor. And then there's corporate welfare. Over $100 billion a year we spend on corporate welfare, which somehow doesn't upset people the same way that welfare for the poor upsets people. And of course, then there's welfare that's hidden in the military budget uh, as well. Uh, We need to keep all these other types of welfare sort of in context or in mind uh, as we move forward and we start talking about welfare. The reasons for reforming welfare are not simply a matter of we're spending a lot of money on it. The reasons for reforming welfare has much more to do with are we actually helping the poor? It's not just a question of money. Because if you want to save money, if that's all we care about is let's reduce spending on programs, there's a lot of other places we can go to just reduce money. So let's look at the quick question uh, sort of setting the overall context of the discussion we're going to have today on did welfare reform work. And I just want to take a look at this sort of welfare reform in terms of spending. Uh, and you can see this line right here. Uh, this is welfare reform. And So if you look at the context here, we had spending on welfare. Federal and state spending were both rising prior to welfare reform. And since welfare reform, they've continued to rise. And in fact, may have even risen faster. So we're spending more money, actually, fighting poverty since welfare reform than before welfare reform began. These are all in constant dollars, by the way. So this is not just a reflection of inflation. This is a question of we're actually spending more money on anti-poverty programs, on those 100 plus programs that I was talking about. So even if we've somehow held TANF with its block grant Steady, and it's actually declined in real terms. What we've done is simply shift spending to other programs, particularly to in-kind programs uh, rather than cash programs. We've moved away to some extent from giving people cash, and we've increased giving people other types of benefits: housing, uh, well, uh, Medicaid, which is the biggest of, of all these programs, uh, job training programs, education programs, food stamps, and so on. All together, and at the same time. The question comes up to what we've done in terms of poverty. Again, this blue line here right behind me, and I may be blocking it a little bit, is when welfare reform kicks in. Uh, The top rate, the top line up there, the light blue line that goes across, that is the official poverty rate from the Census Bureau. And the other two lines are, again, the spending lines, which I mentioned has continued to rise. And what you see is that immediately after welfare reform, the official poverty measure declined or if, so we, by measuring by the official census measurement, the poverty rates went down. And then, but then it sort of gradually has begun to move back up again, went up quite a bit with the Great Recession, uh, has now leveled off a little bit again. But overall, it's still roughly where it was. You can go all the way back to the beginning of the war on poverty and, and see that the official Census Bureau of poverty measures haven't moved a whole lot. Now, one quick caution on this. Nobody that I know of left or right believes that the official census measurement of poverty is a good measure of poverty (laughs) It in fact, uh, I think you'll find almost unanimous agreement that it is about as bad a poverty measurement as you're going to find Uh, It Doesn't cover either benefits or taxes in many ways. Remember I talked about that. There's this shift from cash benefits to in-kind benefits The official census number doesn't count in-kind benefits. It only counts cash income so let's say somebody was below the poverty line and they received free housing, they get food stamps, they get a number of other types of government benefits that actually raises their standard of living above the poverty line, the official census number would consider them still to be poor. It also doesn't necessarily cover taxes. So you could have somebody who's above the poverty line as far as their income goes, but their take-home pay would take them below the poverty line, and we'd consider them not poor. So it's it's just a bad measurement all the way around. Much better are some of the alternative poverty measures. The Census Bureau has its own uh, alternative poverty measure. And a number of social scientists have developed poverty measures as well that take these sort of benefits into account. And I think they do a much better job of measuring poverty. One that we like particularly here is the Myers-Sullivan Supplementary Poverty Measure. And and we sort of look at that uh, because it does take into account the value of non-cash benefits that individuals receive. Uh, We think it's a much better measure and here once again. This is the brown line is the measurement you see there And there again after what we see that there was a trend downward From the war on poverty downward you see there was a trend uh, Downward in terms of poverty and that trend continued After welfare reform sort of in the same way that was going on before it's not that welfare reform kicked in And then there was a sudden decline in poverty But welfare reform doesn't seem to have interrupted that decline And then that begins to level out uh, around the year 2000 and becomes flat thereafter. Doesn't seem to have ticked up particularly large in terms of the recession either, but seems to have been fairly flat uh, going forward. Uh, At the same time, spending continues to increase. So what you see here is that you don't necessarily see marginal improvements in the poverty rate compared to marginal increases in spending. We continue to spend more money. And don't necessarily receive a big bang for your buck in terms of reducing poverty levels here. But we also didn't see any of the bad things that were predicted to happen out of welfare reform in the sense that I don't see any spike of a million more people falling into poverty on either the official measure or the alternative measure showing up that lots of people were thrown into poverty. So So in terms of all the bad things that were supposed to happen, don't see them happening. But don't see any huge good things either. Don't see a lot of people moving out of poverty. Don't see a lot see marginal increase in terms of the productivity for the spending either. I want to just raise it, moving away from sort of the, the numbers of this, I want to also look at a little bit about what people think about poverty and about welfare system, about welfare reform. And here I'm going to look to a, a survey that just came out, it was done by the LA Times along with our friends from the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, and they asked some questions here. And they asked, for example, what impact have government anti-poverty programs had? Uh, and they asked people who were below the poverty level, the actual poor, which I think is a great idea, actually asking the poor how they feel about programs for the poor, uh, that we tend to neglect that, uh, and uh, as well as people who are above the poverty level. And one of the interesting things here is that people who said that they made it worse, 40% of poor people thought that the welfare system makes poverty worse. So that would suggest that the people who this is supposed to help don't think a whole lot is helping them. In fact, among poor people, the number who say it's made a big improvement in their lives, only about 8% think it's really making the system better. Uh, So clearly, if you go to the people who are the supposed beneficiaries of our welfare system, they're not all that fond of it. Uh, They don't think it's all that great. And in fact, uh, when you ask them, do benefits give people a chance to stand on their own two feet and get started again, which is, I think, what we want to see out of a welfare program, it gives people an opportunity to rise up? Or do we think it's just you know, that's likely to make them dependent? Uh, if you ask the poor, 41% of the people who are in poverty think that welfare encourages people to remain dependent. And only 41% thinks it gives them a chance to get out. It's equal. So you see, that's an awful high number, I think, in terms of people who are poor who don't think that welfare benefits them, who think that actually encourages people to stay in poverty, doesn't think it helps people to get the mobility and get out of poverty that we think it should. Uh, we also add, They also asked, uh, you know, if, government was spending, if money was no object, if government was willing to spend whatever it took, do you think they'd get people out of poverty? Because you know, we often hear that. If we only spent more money, if this, this program was only bigger, if we only had another program, 100's not enough, we need 101. The you know, $1 trillion dollars is not enough if we only spent 2 trillion or whatever. Well, we asked them again, people below the poverty line, 71% of them thought that no, even if government spent an unlimited amount of money, it wouldn't necessarily do away with poverty. And when asked who would have the responsibility, for getting them out of poverty. Very interesting that government, only 31% of poor people themselves thought that government had the responsibility to help them get out of poverty. That's a plurality. But if you look at all the areas, the poor themselves, 13%, family, 11%. The church, surprising high, 24%. Private charity, 11%. People basically don't want if they're poor, to rely on the government. They don't think it does a particularly good job. So if we're spending more money than ever before, not seeing any particularly good results, and even the beneficiaries think we're doing a bad job and we should be looking elsewhere, one has to wonder if this has been a huge success. Let me close with some questions that I think everyone should keep in mind. And also, I hope, you know, maybe we'll see some of this touched on in the panels to come. But there are just some things that I think the audience generally should be looking at. One of these is, what is poverty? How we think about whether people are poor or not is going to have a great deal of impact on what we think we should do. About poverty. I mean, should we be talking about absolute poverty? I mean, sort of an absolute number that we don't want anyone to fall before. Are we talking about no one should starve? You know, I mean, I know there's some folks, some other thing takes that talk a lot about. Well, everybody's got a television and a cell phone, so therefore, there's no poverty in America. Well, but is that you know is that really true? Is that really how we want to measure? You know, we're not South Sudan. Hooray! That you know. Is that really how we want to measure poverty? On the other hand, a lot of places measure relative poverty. How poor are people compared to rich people? And it's sort of a measure of inequality. But if you choose relative measures of poverty, you're never going to end poverty. You know, if you doubled everybody's income, it would be a wonderful thing in terms of absolute poverty. Think of all the people you'd get out of poverty if you doubled everybody's income. You wouldn't change relative poverty at all, though, would you? So the question is, when we target these programs, when we do welfare reform, when we have a government program designed to lift people out of poverty, are we targeting absolute poverty? Or are we trying to deal with relative poverty and trying to make people more equal? I mean, is inequality the issue? Or is poverty the issue? And which of those should we be targeting in terms of our program? Along the same lines, What is the goal of a welfare program and of welfare reform? Is it simply to reduce deprivation? Are we trying to make poverty less uncomfortable? Are we satisfied if someone is still poor, but they don't go hungry? Seems to me like it's a good thing to do if we can reduce deprivation, if we can stop people from starving. I'm all for that. But should we then rest on our laurels and say we've accomplished what we set out to accomplish? Or should we instead be trying to reduce poverty itself? Do we want to have fewer poor people? Do we want to have people less dependent on government? Do we want to increase mobility so that people who are born poor or their children who are born poor are able to rise out of poverty? And if we want to do the latter, are we accomplishing that with the programs we have? Did welfare reform do anything to accomplish that? Actually, if you look at some of the work by Raj Chetty and others, what we find is that economic mobility is pretty much where it was before welfare reform, and for that matter, before the war on poverty itself. So have we really done anything in terms of helping to get people out of poverty with welfare reform or with welfare, to begin with. I think we also need to look and raise the question, in terms of designing our programs, around what we think is the reason why people are poor. And this was a huge debate within the welfare reform debate. Are people poor because of structural issues? Does it have to do with our economy and the way our economy works? Is that what causes poverty? Is it because of the legacy we have in this country of racism and sexism? And Lord knows we have treated people of color and women deplorably over the history of our country. What impact does that have on why people are poor? Or is poverty something that's caused by culture or individual behavior? Is it that people have made bad choices in their life? We know, for example, that if you drop out of school, you're much more likely to be poor. If you get pregnant and you're not married, you're much more likely to be poor. If you don't have a job, you're much more likely to be poor, and so on. How much of that is due to choices that people make? Now, personally, I think it's a little bit of both of these things. I think that you can't deny the structural problems in our society of race and gender and so on. But I also think people are not, you know, they do have agency. They're not blown about by the wind, totally deprived of choice, totally unable to make decisions in their life, totally subject to the structures of society. People are able to make their own decisions. They are free agents. They can make choices that make a difference in their lives. And some people who are born under the worst of circumstances, rise above them. On the other hand, as much as we can say that people make bad choices sometimes, it's impossible to place those choices outside of the context in which they are made. You cannot take an inner city African-American child who has to live with all that goes on in terms of lousy schools and police abuses and general racism every day in society and say, okay, now's the time to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I don't think any of those things is true. But in terms of welfare reform, it matters a great deal which of those two things you emphasize, if you emphasize structural problems to society, you're going to go one way in terms of reforms. If you emphasize the behavioral choices and the incentives that are created by welfare in terms of behavioral choices, if you pay somebody not to work, they're less likely to work. If you pay somebody to have children, they're more likely to have children and so on. That makes a difference as well. How do you merge those two things? And part of that is with a long-running debate that goes all the way back to the Elizabethan poor laws and beyond about the deserving and the undeserving poor. We all want to help people we think deserve our help, widows and orphans and so on historically. But we also have people we think, well, they could really not be poor if they only did things behave differently. And I don't know if we want to help them. And we walk by them on the street all the time here in DC. I say, that goes all the way back, Elizabethan poor laws We talked about you could help widows and orphans, but sturdy vagabonds, as they were called then, uh, could be whipped out of town for begging. Welfare reform, again, had a lot to do with how you saw those things. Did you see people who were poor as being poor not because of their behavior, but because of circumstances outside their control? Or did you see them poor because they did things in ways that contributed to their own poverty? And how, then, do you respond to that? Do you incentivize? Do you change incentives? Do you try to change behavior? How do you respond to all of that? I think that that matters a great deal in terms of how you look at welfare reform. And finally, there's issues outside of welfare that I think we need to address if you're going to have an impact on welfare reform. Criminal justice reform. I don't think there's any possible way to deal with poverty in this country unless you deal with the criminal justice system and its abuses. The fact is, if you steal millions of young black men out of the society because they are in jail or on probation, they have a criminal record that makes it impossible to get a job, they're constantly harassed, you are not going to be able to reduce poverty. What about education? The fact that our public school system is a failure in the inner city and doesn't educate millions of children, that is more responsive to the teachers' unions and the special interests than it is to children and parents, traps millions of children in poverty. Jobs and economic growth, we know that less than 3% of people who work full-time live below the poverty level. There really is no better way out of poverty, no better welfare reform than getting a job.